Aloha. This is Catherine Cruz. Mahalo for joining us here on The Conversation, Hawaii Talks. The push is on for housing for displaced Maui families. Will enough property owners who have vacation rentals respond to the call to help the community? Or will we see an exodus of families because they can't find long-term housing? We talk about saving those mementos found in the ash. Two women who know a thing or two about conservation share some ways to preserve items that survived the Maui fires. We hear about community concerns over a landfill for hazardous ash from the burn zone. Plus, we reflect on this year with some striking findings from the Pew Foundation. Our contributing editor, Neil Milner, joins us for the last long view of the year. is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. The Council for Native Hawaiian Advancement has emerged as a go-to site for housing for those displaced by the Maui wildfires. It has housed 528 families with its assets. Other agencies like FEMA and the Department of Human Services have stepped up programs to help provide incentives for landlords to turn short-term rentals into long-term housing for displaced families. We talked to Dean Minakami, head of the Hawaii Housing and Finance Development Corporation, which initially stepped up to provide connections between those with vacant homes or rooms to help those left homeless by the fires. More than 600 families have been helped by the state effort. Here's Minakami, who we talked to on Friday. You know, initially, our focus was either on short-term or long-term accommodations, but now we really need folks to provide long-term rental housing. The survivors, they have rooms and hotels or other accommodations, but they really need longer term secure housing so that they can, you know, plan out the rest of their their near term future at least until they can rebuild their homes. Well, since you launched your program, how many people have you been able to help? We have had 606 families find housing through our program. We have had 1,034 persons offer their properties to us that have been verified. There has been a good number of people who have offered their home statewide. Families have found housing through this program. I imagine families would prefer to stay in Maui. If they don't have to leave the island, that would be their first choice. Definitely, we see that there is much greater demand for rentals on Maui. Residents are tied to their communities, so especially West Maui. What can you tell us about the property owners that have offered their units or, or homes here on Oahu or on other islands? Well, it's, it's a range. I mean, many people have offered rooms within their homes, and many have offered also apartments. Some of them are for shorter term, some for longer terms. So it really is a range of housing types that have been offered. Okay, and you are looking for property owners that maybe could take in pets as well, right? That's correct, because many property owners, you know, survivors have pets. And as you can imagine, it can be hard to find a pet-friendly landlord. So that especially is needed now. So landlords can be flexible and who can allow their survivors and their pets to be housed. We'd be very grateful if they could offer their homes. What do property owners need to know about the program that you folks are administering? A couple of things. To register, all they have to do is go to our website. And there's a link there for them to fill out a form, provide the details about their property. Once they complete that form, someone from our office will call them to verify that the listing is authentic. And once it's verified, then their listing is added to a database which survivors can go through each day. So we do have people looking at our listings every day, looking for, you know, listings that meet their needs. Also note that we do not provide financial assistance to landlords, but there are other programs that could provide financial assistance. The Department of Human Services has a program, also for Native Hawaiian Advancement also has a program, and FEMA does provide rental assistance to the survivors for them to pay fair market rent. When the fires first occurred, the emphasis was, let's get something out there as quickly as we can. 
and we knew that there were other people, you know, launching similar programs. But at the time, you know, we spoke to each other and said, okay, we're, we're each going to do what we can and we'll provide the survivors with multiple options. And I think that was great initially, but now we have to make things simpler for the survivors. So we're trying to consolidate our programs into one. There are several thousand households who are still in, in hotels and who still have housing uncertainty, so especially during this time, if they could have the means to offer their, their homes, please do, because these are you know, our fellow Kama'aina who really need housing. Of the property owners that stay on Oahu who might have units or who have offered their units up, I mean, have those Maui families already relocated here to this island or are they still on Maui? Some of them are relocating to Oahu. Um, you know, I think many of the survivors wish to stay on Maui, but especially for those who may have uncertainty about employment, they are looking to relocate. Our hope is that if they come to Oahu, it's only temporarily, and once in the rebuilding on Maui occurs, and they can you know, go back to their home on Maui. I don't know if you had a chance to talk to any of these families, you know, what you've heard from them. Our staff has spoken to many of the families and, you know, the stories many times, you know, they're, they're heartbreaking. These are people whose lives have been completely upset. They've lost loved ones. They've lost most of their possessions. They've lost their employment in many places, so they're really rebuilding. And so to rebuild, you have to have, it really helps to have stable housing. So that's what we're trying to do on our part is just to provide stable housing so that survivors can rebuild their lives. Uh, anything else you can share with us? I mean, uh, you know, uh, I know that after the fire, we talked to uh, former state Senator Roz Baker, who lost her home and all her possessions, and she was able to get into another unit. But at the time, she said, it's only good until the day after Christmas, and then I've got to find someplace else. So, yeah, it's it's very stressful. It is very stressful. If there are survivors listening, I would just ask them to, you know, contact FEMA, see what programs might be available to them. If they're not FEMA eligible, then try working with the Red Cross to see what programs they can offer. Um, you know, in some way or form, you know, we are committed to helping all of those folks that were displaced by the fire. And then I don't know if you've been in contact with the property owners. Do we know why some might be reluctant to offer their units up? You know, I, I know FEMA in some cases, I think, has what uh, uh, property managers. And, you know, there's a whole process that's been set up. But well, what are you hearing from out in the field? Um, I think there's a range of reasons why property owners aren't offering their units. One might be... You know, for the FEMA direct lease program, FEMA places the families there so the landlord can't directly choose who stays there. Um, I think there might be concerns about whether the, the rent will cover their costs. Or, you know, I know some have also been concerned about the ability, you know, to remove tenants, you know, given that there's a restriction on evictions. So it's a whole assortment of reasons why property owner might hesitate. Yes. I think each property owner has their own reasons why they are not off, may not offer their unit. And I think that's why with these programs, see the programs by DHS where they're offering rental assistance directly to the, the property owner, is to encourage them that there is you know, a financial incentive for them to open their, their homes. Yes. And, you know, we've seen the mayor offer the property tax breaks. And in the absence of enough units, there is that big stick that the governor is holding out there just to either impose the moratorium or the county might, you know, raise the property taxes. Yes. So hopefully it doesn't get to that point. The last thing we want to do is to have an exodus of people from Maui because they can't find housing that occurs, then that's going to hurt Maui's economy even more because, as you said, then the businesses, the hotels, the restaurants won't have a workforce. So really by offering their homes, uh, anyone on Maui is, is also helping their own situation because they'll be helping Maui's economy to recover quicker. 
That was Dean Minokami, head of the Hawaii Housing Finance and Development Corporation, which has helped more than 600 families find housing after being displaced by the fires there on Maui. The Council for Native Hawaiian Advancement website uh, is transitioning and is aggregating resources. Uh, It is helpingmaui.org. Displaced Maui families are in various stages of going through the fire rubble as neighborhoods are being allowed to return to their homes. But they may have questions about salvaging their personal items or keepsakes salvaged from the ash. We recently spoke with Leanne Ao, a paper conservator at the University of Hawaii, and art archivist Malia Van Heuklem about the best advice for protecting what's retrieved from the burn zone. So far, what we've been able to do is mostly outreach to the community there, to the cultural heritage organizations, and also letting the residents know that we're available to connect them with the National Heritage Responders, a national organization which is uh, volunteers active in disasters. So we've been over, but we haven't been into the burn zone or actually done any hands-on recovery. Have you been to other disasters? Maybe not just wildfires, but floods and things, right? The most common thing that we've responded to is water emergencies. That's part of what got me involved was the outpouring of support for our library following the Hamilton Library floods. At that time, I wasn't working there, but our whole community learned about what went into that and there was a lot of training that came out of that. Oh yeah, I mean, that was uh, amazing because it just really devastated um, the collections down downstairs. Uh, you had all the maps. So I wasn't at the library at okay. that time, but because it was such a huge event, it, it meant that we had many damaged and mud-covered collections for a long period. So even though I wasn't there, um, when I did come back, there was still aerial photographs and maps that were in the freezer that had been frozen for many years. And so, I mean, it was such a very long process, but you know, I think that they really made an effort to figure out like a good treatment protocol. And so, even though it took many years to complete everything, we were all able to get trained up in like the same manner and use the equipment that was on hand to treat them even though it had been many years. Malia, I know there in Lahaina, I mean, we saw not just museums, but churches go up, temples, and a lot of those places, you know, had artifacts that they treasure. What was the biggest need that you saw when you were there for your meetings? One thing that we've been just trying to track some social media and news and find out what kind of materials were impacted. And we have been reaching out to the sites from the beginning. That was one of the first things that we did was compile a list of all the impacted cultural heritage sites, be be they museums, cultural centers, historic churches, schools, and try to get their contact information so that we could start to share out information on recovery. But definitely some of the Japanese temple sites that are there, we know there's a giant bronze Buddha and bell that are still standing out there in the ashes. And those, they're going to be fine after they get cleaned. And then Leanne, you know, what are you seeing? Uh, Because you're a paper conservator. Mm -hmm. Um, What types of questions have come up? Um, Well, related to the the paper materials it's we are we haven't heard much so like the people that have we have had been able to talk to um it's it's a lot of metals or um ceramics and that are being found and not a lot of paper so much and it's hard right it's hard to say that until you go in you don't know it does make it difficult to imagine you know, um, so a lot of a lot of the paper may not have survived. It the may fire. not have, but um, like we've talked to other experts um, who have dealt with fire, and they say that it really depends. You know, sometimes a wall will fall down, or and it will protect whatever is underneath it, or the fire may have just moved. And we saw that with just some of the p- homes and places that didn't um, didn't burn. So there is a possibility, but yeah, it's so hard to say until. They actually get to go in to the sites. What will be left after you? 
And what are just some best practices? I mean, what are some common tips? I mean, if there are families out there that are going through their things now and want to know, you know, how do you protect them? Do you put them in a plastic sleeve? How do you clear off the charred edges? As part of the National Heritage Responders, we did help with assist with making some webinars that we hoped would would help with the care and handling and, and it's safe protecting yourselves. Because like one of the, the main things we wanted to stress was that because we are unsure exactly what might be in the ash, but pretty sure that there are some toxins. So um, we wanted to make clear like one of the important things is before you even go in to just have your um, personal protective equipment before you go sifting through everything and, and you know, gloves to protect you. And, and if, if things are found, they probably would be best to try and clear off the soot and the ash if possible. And in the webinars, we kind of cover some of the materials you can use, like a vacuum with a HEPA filter um, and soot sponges that would just remove um, those from the surface of objects. And then bagging or boxing probably would would be a good idea for the for the long-term storage because you don't know if you can get all of those toxins out um, with the cleaning. I don't know if freezing is an option. You know, I mean, like we were talking about the floods earlier, but do you do something like that with items that you've you know recovered from the fire? At this point, because the rains have returned, there's a good chance that things that are recovered are going to be wet, and that's when you would freeze materials. When the materials were dry, there wasn't really a need to do that. The freezing deals with any kind of moisture so that you're not growing mold. That's the main thing, because gotcha. in our environment, that's always first and foremost like if they recovered wood or anything that would support mold growth. And then uh, these webinars, like how do people access them? Yeah, so they're posted in two locations. They're um, recorded on and on the YouTube site for the National Heritage Responders. So there's the health and safety and objects. And then the final one was books, papers, and photographs. And before we were able to share that information out, the very first thing that we were sending out was uh, FEMA after the fire. It's just a one-pager, double-sided, with all kinds of resources and tips. And that's really designed for the general public, but the information is just trusted sources. And you don't want to give people a list of 20 or 30 links to resources and just overwhelm them. You just want to give them what they need to know right now. What's your been experience when you've interacted with the folks on this in, on, on this special committee? I mean, I'm sure they've just been through so many different disasters. With the National Heritage Responders, yeah. So we all have different experiences. With the webinars, some of the people in my group, there were two of us that are not actually conservators, but we both have a lot of experience working with artifacts. I do in my collection at the library, but before that I worked at Iolani Palace and have worked with other object collections around town. So the other woman that was object space was in California and she had experience responding to California wildfires. And then we had two object conservators. And so we all bring different experience. And fire salvage is not something that a lot of us train with because it's really the worst thing that can happen to your collections. And usually when there's fire, there's water. And so you have to deal with that first because if water's been used to extinguish the fire, then your materials are wet and you deal with that to prevent a secondary disaster of a mold outbreak and then you can start to address the soot and ash. And so these preliminary meetings that you had over on Maui, I mean, will you then go into some of those burnout areas, the burn zone, or, or, or will, the, will the organizations do that on their own? Part of the challenge with this has been the protractive entry. As zones are opening up one by one, you know, we're all just trying to figure it out as we go along and figure out how we can be most helpful. We had early on, I think, imagined that we would be going in and maybe setting up a triage tent along the edge to assist not only the 
cultural heritage sites, but the residents give them advice as they're doing an initial salvage and just vacuuming things as they exit. But that's, this is that's not how that's working yeah. out. So Leanne and I went last month and we spent one day at the Koko Maui site and just made ourselves available and had let all of the cultural heritage sites know that we'd be there. And we had a couple of members from churches come and talk to us. And then we went to the, the main disaster recovery center at Lahaina Civic Center. And part of what was good about that, it, we only had a few people come to us at both sites from the churches, but letting the people at the recovery centers know that we're available and give them our tip sheets and the other things that we've been sharing, we have a listserv that has members of Hawaii's local libraries, archives, and museums. And so we've been sharing out from the beginning any kind of connection to uh, Hawaii Emergency Management Agency would host workshops on how to apply for FEMA aid. Mm -hmm. So we're able to you know, get out targeted information right. on that. And also now there's a national endowment for the humanities is giving, has an application out for collections recovery grants, just for Maui and just for impacted sites. And that was art archivist Malia Van Hukulum and paper conservator Leanne Nao with the University of Hawaii. They were offering resources for those who are wondering about how best to treat keepsake salvage from the burn zone in Maui. petition is circulating against a plan for a temporary landfill site in Oluwalu. HPR reporter Catherine Kluwit-Panktel joins us to talk about this pushback. Hi, Catherine. Good morning. Yeah, so I, I just saw that the, the numbers uh, on that petition, more than 5,000, I think. Yeah, so yesterday, hundreds of residents were protesting um, at the Oluwalu site. So this is being called a temporary debris site for the toxic fire debris coming from Lahaina that will be uh, begin removal next month. And um, protesters are saying that it was hastily decided without adequate adequate considerations um, for concerns like the environment, the reef is right there, um, as well as the area being a cultural site uh, with uh, Ivi Kapuna, I believe. Oluwalu is historically known as uh, Pu'uhunua, or protected area for folks seeking refuge. So there, there's a lot of history there. Um, Eddie Garcia in Oluwalu is a resident who has been outspoken about the concerns, and he actually went into the site and says that the the liner concept that has been shown by the county for the for the permanent debris site is not what's being installed in the temporary site, and he's uh, you know highlighting the the environmental concerns of uh, runoff and and leakage and all of those things. So it's it's quite a, a contentious. Uh, issue and causing some concerns right now. Yeah, and the county and Army Corps of Engineers have been working really hard with D DLNR, you know, looking for various sites, and, and this was the temporary one, uh, but there still will also be a permanent solution for that, Ash. Yes, yeah, so the county is saying that uh, directing folks to visit Lahaina Strong's uh, uh, survey that's being sent to Lahaina residents to help decide the final site. So this Oluwalu site is, is a temporary site, they stressed, and last week hundreds of Lahaina residents came out to a meeting to learn more about what's going on with, with the debris site. The county is looking at eight possible final sites on Maui, and they say they're not considering transporting this debris to the continental U.S. It would take years and billions of dollars to ship it out, um, and so it, it will be staying on Maui, it sounds like. The debris removal is being done by the Army Corps of Engineers. They recycle as much material as possible. They remove the top six inches of soil. They wrap it, they call it a burrito wrap, in plastic before they transport it to the debris site. And that soil is tested for contaminants. And if needed, an additional six inches of soil will be removed from burn sites in Lahaina. And Colonel Jesse Curry with the Army Corps says Oluwalu site is, will begin receiving material in mid-January. 
So just emphasizing the purpose for the temporary debris storage site is as rapidly as possible for us to address the environmental hazards that are currently on the ground in Lahaina and get those into a controlled environment. So the temporary debris storage site is under construction today. It has been under construction for, for a few weeks now. It is, it is templated to be complete by early February. And that's complete construction of a temporary debris storage site. We do anticipate and we are pushing to, for our contractor to be able to start receiving at the material at that location in the middle of January. So as they construct it, we are working through methods to where they can open up one, one part of the, of the site to start receiving material again so we can reduce as many days as possible of that, uh, that hazards that are on the ground in, in uh, Lahaina. So it sounds like that project really is on the move. It is. So the temporary debris site is, is definitely moving forward at this time. Shane Agawa is director of Maui County's De Department of Environmental Management. He spoke at last week's meeting saying the county has narrowed permanent debris sites to six locations on Maui and then added two more based on public feedback. He explained at last week's meeting how the temporary Oluwalu site was chosen. Our task under our department is to determine a final disposition site for the debris coming from Lahaina. There was some misunderstanding about the Oluwalu site. We have not uh, found the site to be the final site. We are still vetting that our department's purview is for the health and public health and safety and environmental responsibility. At the time, the criticalness of the debris being out in Lahaina was paramount in addition to getting the infrastructure back up. So we were trying to remove the debris mainly for the public's health and safety. One of the criteria is time to acquire land. As I mentioned, the expeditious removal of the debris out of Lahaina was forefront for us early on. So expeditious land acquisition was a high priority. The state approached us and uh, offered land at the Oluwalu site. We did go to the BLNR hearing and the management of the land was given to us temporarily with a right of entry. Yeah, and that site is, is close to Lahaina, right? It is. It's right outside of Lahaina. So Agawa said other criteria for the final site include proximity to Lahaina just to minimize the distance that this debris needs to be driven, uh, buffer from schools and hospitals of at least a half mile, I believe, and of course looking at environmental impacts uh, like the effects on drinking water sources and runoff and things like that. So the Maui County Council will be discussing the decision next week at their January 2nd meeting, and uh, I think they're getting closer toward a decision on that final site. All right. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Catherine. Thank you. We have been talking to HBR reporter Catherine Cluett-Pactel about uh, a plan for a temporary landfill site and a permanent land site as well. You can read her stories uh, at hawaiipublicradio.org. When you support HPR, you support locally produced programs featuring locally produced music, including Connie Kapila Sunday. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Connie Kapila Sunday. I'm Kaylee Iloma, and I'm so happy to be with you again on a Sunday from 2 to 4 p.m. to offer you great Hawaiian music from all periods. Hawaii Kula Ivi. Aloha noi kako, you are tuned in to member-supported Hawaii Public Radio 1's Hawaii Kulaivi, Ova no Keio, DJ Mermaid, Paige Okamura, and Malka Tamakai. This is Malka Tamakai. I'm your host, Roger Bong. Your support brings the music of Hawaii to the world. Support Hawaiian and local music programs on HPR. Donate at hawaiipublicradio.org. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your backyard quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omaui, 
Today, we're testing your knowledge of a local island staple. It was originally introduced by southern Chinese plantation laborers and was known as char shu bao, which roughly translates into fork-roasted pork bun. In the early 1900s, Hawaiians called these buns mea ono pua'a, which means a delicious pastry made with pork. The meaning of the word stayed roughly the same, although today locals know this food by its local name, manapua. Traditionally, char shu bao are steamed with a steam on the top of the plump white dough. However, the local cooking style is to bake the bun, seam down, so they come out of the oven with a smooth golden brown crust. For today, Today's Backyard Quiz, can you tell us the name of one of the first shops in Hawaii to sell the baked version of char shu bao? Here's a hint. It's one of the original tenants of Honolulu's Chinatown Cultural Plaza. Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag from HPR. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nairit Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing homeless families with access to affordable housing, such as women in need on Kauai. NairitHawaii.com. HPR's corporate relations team is growing. We're looking for an experienced media sales professional who is community-minded and loves HPR to join our team as a corporate relations associate. If you excel at new business development, enriching existing relationships, and ensuring client satisfaction, we want to hear from you. Apply by December 31st. Learn more at hawaiipublicradio.org jobs. Support for HPR comes from Osher Lifelong Learning Institute for ages 50 and older with courses such as art, film, history, and gardening. Classes begin January 22nd. More by searching O-L-L-I-U-H-M. It's our last long view with our contributing editor, Neil Milner, for the year. And today we're reflecting on 2023 with some findings from recent research by the Pew Foundation. Well, welcome. And well, hello. I don't have any Manapua for you, sorry. No, <laughs> but what an introduction, saying it's going to be the last time I'm on for the year. I don't think that's wishful thinking, but I'll take it anyway. <laughs> Yeah, so, so tell us about this research. Well, I've done every year for the past few years, uh, Pew, uh, the Pew Foundation uh, publishes a list of what it calls its striking findings. A lot of them come from their own surveys, and some come from other places. And I always do some stuff on it. And I thought I'd do it again this year and pick out a few of the more striking findings. They're different from one another, but I think they're they're kind of cool, actually. One of, involves, uh, the, one of it involves marriage the decrease in the number of people who are married by the time they're 40 and what that might suggest. The second one is polarization and non-polarization, which essentially is about the fact that, that we're even more polarized on other issues than we used to be. Shared depolarization, kind of uh, what you call people reaching across the aisle, the biggest sharing is how bad government is. Uh, and then the third one is a little bit different that I thought has a nice kind of New Year's thing about connections, and it has to do with the survey that showed how many people over the past year have had contact, either through dreams or other ways, through dead relatives. So, so that's the three. And so what do the marriage numbers show? Okay, the marriage numbers show that there has been a large increase in the number of people who are, uh, have never been married by the age of 40. And there are 25% of, of, of 40-year-olds have never been, or 40-plus, have never been married by the age of 40. This is an increase from 6% 
only 35 years ago. What you had for long periods of time from about the 1900s until 1980, a large uh, decrease in the, in the number of people who weren't married by 40. And then it's gone up again. Um, the, it's not clear from the survey why it is, so we'll talk a little bit about why it might be. It's pretty clear that people don't view marriage, if you look at all the surveys, as necessarily being the most important thing in a good life. That's a little bit tentative from what we know here. But I think there's a couple of other things that are really important about the marriage one, one of which is that it probably depends on whether people are postponing marriage or not or permanently saying they're going to be single. And I want to be careful here. I don't want to suggest that people who don't get married don't have a good life. However, if you look at the statistics, economic statistics, uh, and some social statistics, people who postpone marriage, uh, lots of us have kids who didn't get married till later, really are taking a step up uh, on the income and success bracket because essentially the postponement of marriage may mean that they've uh, had housing already purchased. It may mean that they both have good jobs. It's not like, you know, your high school classmates who got married the day after graduation, whether they had to or not. And so there is that kind of literature that talks about isolation. It talks about economic disparity. talks about the difficulty of single men. talks about the difficulty of, uh, of African-American women to find mates that fits their thing. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of um, uncertainty here, but the fact that it's gone up is enough to be a trigger to look a little bit more into marriage. So, so that's one. The second one, we can summarize pretty quickly the way I did before <laughs> about who's polarized and who isn't. You know, goodness sake, we found other things that were already polarized to get even more polarized for, one of which is science. Republicans and Democrats differ about whether whether science is useful to society. Republicans are much less willing to grant that to science. Some of that is a COVID legacy, but it really started before that. Uh, Republicans and Democrats differ on uh, whether Twitter, now called X, is good or not. This is kind of reversed, right? Republicans all of a sudden like X. They like it because Elon Musk has promised them certain things that, in fact, uh, uh, Democrats hate. So you have a big chasm there. Republicans say, hey, you know what? It's coming along fine. By the way, NPR does not use Twitter anymore for, uh, for reasons that they thought they were being treated fairly. A third thing, and this will lead into the, into the similarities, the third thing is that um, Republicans and Democrats differ over whether they approve of the Supreme Court or not. And I think this is kind of a reverse. It used to be that Republicans didn't like the court. Democrats were more likely to like it. It's no big surprise that that switched because of the fact that it's a court now that rules much more in favor of Republicans. But that leads to this sharing thing because overall, the approval rating of the Supreme Court is way down. Approval is less than disapproval for the first time in God knows how many years. So you have essentially, you begin to see the seeds here of people uh, sharing certain things on the basis of the fact that they don't like those things at all. And so if you look at this stuff on Republicans and Democrats tend to share views that government isn't acting too well, the media is not covering issues that they want to have covered, all of those kinds of things, too much concerns with uh, various sorts of things that are trivial or not really very important to to themselves. And both sides share the idea that there's too much partisanship. Well, I mean, we've looked into that one before. Usually it means when a Democrat says there's too much partisanship, what Democrats tend to mean is that the Republicans should come over and agree with them. And <laughs> yeah. it's the same with the other side. And, and that's true. But it is the, the, the amount of distrust, the, the amount of, of skepticism, the amount of just disgust 
with politics is becoming a very important factor in American political life, and you see it here. So we have lots of, uh, not enough weddings, but still lots of discourse. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, that's right. Yeah, and if you, yes, uh, there's, even if you have weddings, you can have a lot of discourse <laughs> there, and the sheriff gets called. Um, the, the last one is intriguing to me because of what it doesn't show and what it does show. What it shows is that about half the people share some kind of experience of contact with relatives. And you're talking uh, dead relatives. Dead relatives, dead mm-hmm. relatives. Some through dreams, some through other ways. It's very interesting. Now, the Pewey said, we don't know exactly what those contexts are. But if you look at other parts of the survey, it's very clear that people experience these things. They've gotten messages from them. And that even though societies become less religious in a formal sense, um, people still have this kind of sense of spirit and connection that they relate to to the past. Yeah, well, I haven't had anything recently. I don't know, have you? <laughs> uh, no, I actually haven't. Yeah, but I don't know, maybe it's just the time of the year when you start thinking about well, people it's, that we've Well, I mean, this is, uh, you know, one of the things that also shows up is most people think that there is something out there that science can't explain. Yeah, yeah, well, it, it, it's interesting that, uh, yeah, that, that this comes up, but um, I don't know what that means. Yeah, well, <laughs> but the, just the connection is something to think about in yeah. a new year. All righty, all right. Well, thank you so much, Neil. Sure. That was our contributing editor, Neil Milner, with our bi-weekly segment we call The Long View. We'll have a link to the articles and information on our conversation page of our website later today. is the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. On today's Manu Minute, we've got the scratchy calls of a common game bird, thanks to the Mokale Library at the Cornell Laboratory of Ornithology for these recordings of Black Franklins. Here's University of Hawaii at Hilo professor Patrick Hart. Black Franklins are a plump partridge that stand a little more than a foot tall. Male Black Franklins are particularly striking with a jet black breast and head and a bright white patch below the eye, cinnamon-colored neck, and zebra-like striping on their backs. Given their strong legs, they're mostly cursorial, meaning they spend much of their time on the ground. But at the sign of danger, they use their short, rounded wings, along with strong breast muscles, for fast but short bursts of flight. Their calls are given only by males and can be heard throughout the year. They usually climb up to the highest nearby perch, like a fence post or a tree branch, stretch their neck up, throw their head backwards, and let out a series of four or five loud, scratchy, metallic syllables. Black Franklins are naturally found from northern India all the way to the Mediterranean. They were introduced to several U.S. states, and also Hawaii, in the 50s and 60s for hunting, but Hawaii is the only place where they survive, likely because there's fewer predators here than other places. In the few decades since their arrival, they've become common game birds on the dry leeward sides of all the main Hawaiian islands. Black Franklins spend most of their time in woodlands and grasslands, where they hunt for insects, seeds, and fruits. One of our fears with introduced birds that eat fruits is that they'll help spread the seeds of invasive plant species into new areas. However, a recent study in Hawaii has shown that for partridges like black francolins, most seeds they consume don't survive passage through their gut, so they likely don't contribute much to the spread of invasive plant species here. For Hawaii Public Radio, this is Patrick Hart from the UH Hilo Department of Biology. Support for Manu Minute comes from the Hawaii Audubon Society, working to protect Hawaii's native wildlife through programs and projects such as its Kolei account. Learn more about programs and volunteering at hiaudubon.org. Live music is back at HPR's Atherton Studio. Join us every Saturday night in January at the Atherton in Honolulu for live classical music from Barden Nescalo duo, Gaylord DeWald, 
Sean Conley, and Tommy Morrison. For tickets and more info, visit hprtickets.org. Sponsored by Farm Lovers Markets. Support for HPR comes from the Hawaii Community Foundation, committed to supporting the people and places affected by the Maui wildfires. Donations accepted at hawaiicommunityfoundation.org slash MauiStrong. Just coming off Christmas, but uh, our reality check today has to do with a wish for a bike lane from the west side connecting to the University of Hawaii Manoa campus. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Ben Engroen is on the line today. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. How was your holiday season so it, far? It was wonderful. I didn't have a bike under my tree, but <laughs> I have one already. <laughs> but Some a bike path, a bike path. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. This is something that I think... Um, you know, when I talked to city officials, they said that this was something that had been stewing in their minds for years now. And really what gave them the, I guess, the chance to try to put it into reality was having some extra federal dollars to spend. So I think there's a there's a segment of people that would definitely be interested and have been waiting for a long time for this. And I, it seems like they'll have to wait a little bit longer, uh, maybe 20 years longer. Yeah, that's your headline, and, and that's longer than, than rail. Uh, <laughs> but I yeah. have to I have to chuckle because I know somebody who had this idea that you could turn the guideway into a bike path <laughs> instead of building rail. But you know, yeah, some of our commenters mentioned that too. Yeah, it's like we're already building it, and that's that's sort of what stuck out to me about it too. Not necessarily putting a bike path on the guideway, but this sort of um, interesting contrast or really similarity, I guess, between building a complex rail system from one side of the island to the other, and that taking a long time, maybe longer than expected. But then the uh, the bike path taking a similarly long period of time, even though it's not as complicated engineering and technology-wise. I think it was sort of surprising to me to hear that that's a possibility. Yeah, and we're talking from Nanakuli to Manoa. Yes, yeah. So it's sort of interesting, too, the, uh, the way that this would be developed. I think unlike rail, which starts at one side and then is gradually built up a little bit at a time going in the same direction. Uh, the way that officials described the building of this bike route is sort of more of a patchwork kind of thing where you can already think of a few examples that exist. For example, I mentioned South King Street has the protected two-way lane as well as um, the Pearl Harbor bike path that mm -hmm. already exists. And so the way this would be built is sort of filling in those gaps. Right, it's connecting uh, th those segments. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Similar to um, a bike path that's being built and has mostly built by now in San Diego, uh, the Bayshore bike path, which took years and years to build, but is also slowly filling in the gaps. Um, about five years ago or so, we had one of our reporters, Marcel um, Honore, he did a sort of bike story trying to commute by bike from west side Oahu into town. And in the course of that, you can really see where the gaps are, where it becomes there are some periods like a long Pearl Harbor bike path that are pretty chill, pretty fun, uh, very easy. You're not really scared of being hit by a car or anything. But uh, he mentions in the story that there are other areas along the highways where the bike path uh, it's just no longer there at all. And he didn't even feel comfortable riding the bike, even for the story. So he had to jump into the van that accompanied him. Yeah, I mean, some of those sections are a little dicey. You know, you do worry about taking your life into your hands when you're out there on a bicycle sometimes. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I know a few people who have been hit by cars in uh, some minor ways, luckily. But yeah, no, it's it's definitely a danger. And I think it definitely sort of prevents people from wanting to try to bike at all in the first place. And that's that's the goal that I think the city officials are hoping for, that providing this kind of path, this kind of route, would uh, hopefully give people another option 
for how do they, uh, I guess, commute from west side to south shore um, or just along the south shore in general. Mm -hmm. But yeah, this is something that they're looking to do in a bunch of areas too. I mean, North Shore already has Pupukea bike lane, um, which seems pretty fun. I've never tried it, but uh, the officials mentioned that they are trying to hopefully do something like that more extended along the North Shore and even along Leeward side and probably Windward side too. But for now, South Shore is the first sort of big project since there already are some routes that they just have to connect. Right. Even and they, if it'll take decades. And they already uh, put out the call for contractors, right? And so they'll be notifying yep. um, the winners <laughs> next month. Yep. Yeah. And that's just for initial plans. So mm -hmm. pretty big step. It's a hefty step. It encompasses like community outreach and environmental studies, all of that jazz. So that'll be a few years and it's a pretty hefty step. Um, but then they still got to do construction. So we, we got some time. There will be other stories. Yeah. Well, I, I know there are a lot of bikers out there that would love to see it. I knew someone who biked in from the west side and uh, I was amazed <laughs> how brave they were to, to take that on. But thanks so much, Ben. Thanks, Catherine. Have a good one. All righty. That was reporter Ben Engram with today's Reality Check. You can read his stories at civilbeat.org. It's time for the answer to our backyard quiz. Today we delved into one of Hawaii's favorite foods, manapua. These tasty buns are easy to find. They're sold in many local bakeries, convenience stores, and restaurants throughout the state. In the original recipe, they're prepared by steaming. But today we asked you to name a shop that was one of the first to begin selling the baked version. If you said Royal Kitchen, you hit the steamer off the stove. The popular local eatery was opened in 1974 and has been feeding local appetites for for nearly 40 years. Thank you, Leanne. Offering baked manapua in a variety of flavors. Uh, savory fillings like char shu, curry chicken, and lupchong. And sweet centers filled with coconut or black sugar or Okinawan sweet potato. Royal Kitchen is a favorite stop for locals and travelers alike who often take manapua to family or often office parties or give it to uh, friends as gifts, uh, you know, particularly, particularly when you're traveling to the neighbor islands. Uh, and congrats to Mike from Maui. You are a winner today. You probably have been the recipient of, of some of that um, terrific stuff from Royal Kitchen. And that is our quiz today. Thank you to Roger Lau for this tasty bit of trivia. Have one you'd like to share? Write to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org. Well, we have to go now, but up tomorrow we hear from a local musician blending innovation and tradition for a style of jazz that's unlike anything you've heard before. 2024 is fast approaching. What are your New Year's resolutions? Leave your goals and dreams on our talkback line, 808-792-8217, or email talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can find our archive shows online by searching for the conversation page of our website or anywhere else you tune for podcasts. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. Yeah.